Hello, Bitcoiners. Ansel Linder here, Bitcoin and Markets. This is episode 189. Most of this episode is going to be um, the audio cut from my live stream last night. There is a lot of stuff we covered. Um, we did cover the price and there has been a lot of movement today. So I just wanted to go through that real quick. We saw a big spike in the price up to 8700 on Bitstamp. Um, so that was the largest daily gain uh, since the top of this formation. So it does look pretty good for a bottom being in. We didn't quite hit my target down there of between 68 and 7,000 for the bottom, but um, I think this is looking pretty good. If we can get over the 200-day moving average, everything looks all good. But that's it for the quick price update. I cover news and other things in this episode, so enjoy. Don't forget to sign up for the free fundamentals newsletter that comes out every Friday that already went out with a bunch of my commentary. And also I'm starting a paid newsletter that can be found patreon.com for slash Bitcoin and markets there. You can get access to three times a week of all of my price commentary, which I'm moving from the free report over to this paid report. So the free report will still have all the news and other things uh, from around the space. But my price calls and my price stuff specifically, talking about more of the fundamentals and the technicals of the price itself, that is going to be on the paid report. So go uh, support the show. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Thanks, guys. I'll see you on the flip side. What's up, guys? How's it going? I'm Ansel. This is Bitcoin and markets live stream. How's everybody doing? Sorry, I couldn't live stream last night, but um, it was beyond my control. I tried to get in here and prepare, but I couldn't prepare properly and I didn't want to do a half-ass live stream. So we are here tonight. That's all right. Let's get on with the show. I want to thank the patrons. The show is made possible by my patron patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Without their support, this show would not be possible. So check it out and support the show if you get some value from it. Okay, let's check out the price here. Oh, we had the big drop that you would have expected if you were listening to the podcast for a while and in our Discord and everything, talking with us over there. So um, it wasn't crazy bad. I mean, I think it was 7%, 6 or 7% that it fell in this one daily candle, which isn't that bad. I was, of course, expecting it to come all the way down here to 7,000. Um, but look, there is no bounce here, so we'll probably go lower. Will we make it all the way down to 7,000 in the near term? I don't know. Uh, this morning, I was kind of getting deep into the charts, and I was convinced that it was going to wick down to 7,000, and that might be it. But, you know, my bullish case for Bitcoin here is that this is the last dip. I really do think that this is not going to be a prolonged uh, pullback. So, well, of course, we've been in this prolonged pullback, but this is not going to go like consolidate at the bottom for a long time and then come back north. I think people are going to be waiting and maybe waiting for 6,000 um, and it doesn't come. And then they're like, oh, well, it's not done going down yet. It's going to keep going. We're in a bear market now again. And it's never going to come back to these levels. So um, I, I'm kind of expecting a wick. I don't know when that will be, um, but I am expecting lower prices. All right. Okay. And another thing about the price here you can see is the 50 and 200 daily moving average is forming a death cross, but uh, it's so far away from the price. I mean, we've already gone down 7%, so um, it could have some significance, but I don't... Like if we go back in time, let's go back... I have to bring up my Bitstamp chart. If we go back in time to way back in time, 2015, you can see we had these little dips, uh, a death cross, and then a golden cross within a month of each other. Um, and it didn't really affect the price. Uh, yeah, I calculated the other day, it was over 10% away from the price. I think it was 11% away from the price when it had its death cross. And the price didn't budge. It just slowly went up. So um, I kind of expect something like this on this death cross. It's not a given every single time, but it, it is a pretty reliable signal. So I can see a lot of people maybe biting off on that, uh, saying that we're going to go lower. I mean, it looks very ominous right here, <laughs> doesn't it? Just 
nothing holding up the price just keep falling keep falling but we're coming to some major support so i think that it i'm i'm 95 percent sure it's not going to break six thousand. so that is uh, what i am seeing for the future okay let's take a look at a few other things the dollar had a vicious sell-off last week and it's started coming back a little bit in the last few days so um i'm still a dollar bull long term not long long term but you know in this uh in this formation we're we're still bullish and the kind of fundamentals behind going to safety fleeing to the dollar uh, dollar shortages around the world we can see which we'll talk about here a little bit the fed situation and uh, everybody's just wanting dollars really really badly to the point of a hundred and twenty billion dollars a night right so there is a huge amount of demand for dollars and i just think it's going to continue to go up uh, one of the things the reasons why this went down so much was because of the pound and the pound had this huge spike this week because of the brexit deal or the no deal the ability to do a no deal that went through so um the the pound spiked a lot, and I don't expect that to last. I mean, um, the British economy is in just as we're just as bad a shape as every other economy in the world, maybe even worse if they have more socialistic policies. So, um, this this is not like the the pound is going to all of a sudden become very strong versus other currencies. This was just a blip in the screen. So that's all for that. Let's take a look at oil because I've been talking about that a lot. Same thing as the dollar went down, expectedly the oil price went up slightly, but not uh, not very much. So uh, it's still in this downward pressure. And if it tests 50 again, it's, in my opinion, going to break it, but we'll see. We'll see how that's going. I mean, the, the geopolitical or the macro situation around the world is just continuing to get worse. It's not getting better. And that's, this is net, this is very negative for oil. I've seen a couple other crypto, uh, commentators out there that on YouTube that are talking now, starting to talk about all of these other markets like the dollar and oil and all these things. And they have similar forecast to mine, but I've been saying this is going to break 50 for a while and we'll see where it goes. Um, anyway. Okay. Let's go on to gold. Gold is pushing up here against some resistance. It's been performing well. I thought it was going to break out here uh, in the beginning of October, but it did not. You know, after it tested down here at 1459, I thought it was going to break out north, but it did not do that. Uh, now it's finding some resistance on this 50-day moving average. So um, I don't know. I, I do expect gold to continue north. We've had a kind of a pause in the panic of the traditional markets. So if you rewind to the end of September and we have the repo stuff starting, some of the, you know, like the stock market selling off a little bit and we have this more panic in the system and that's abated a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but I think that's going to come back. You know, nothing can happen all at once, um, but it's pretty bad right now. So I think that it can't... Um, it can't be too much longer before it comes right back into the headlines and we'll see if if that's this coming week i mean it could be very very soon uh do i want to take a look at ethereum well i said that last time i took a look at this chart let's see if i can get a rectangle out here i said this was kind of like the do or die zone for ethereum and it hit right on it so if it breaks this level the 160 level and it can't hold it um, it looks like open space all the way down to the bottom again I mean there's a few little hiccups maybe in here but really not much support at all all the way down to the bottom now this goes well into um, Bitcoin selling off and that since it's correlated with everything else it will pull down the price of these altcoins and it will pull ethereum underneath this support so everything is connected a lot of people try to say you know well why do you say that bitcoin has to go down to hurt the altcoins um because everything's so highly correlated and bitcoin can handle it right bitcoin is very robust it's going to be here uh very long term 
where I believe that Ethereum is still a lot of uh, speculation and it's a lot of false information and false narratives. And so it cannot hold up, especially when they have this Ethereum 2.0 stuff that is just total bonkers at this point. So uh, I don't think it can survive another big dip, right? It will, people will lose faith. Um, and I think that will be good because they'll start seeing through the the scammy nature that is Ethereum and altcoins in general, um, because Ethereum is the uh, daddy of all the altcoins. If daddy goes down, the rest of the family of altcoins is going to fold as well. So, and I think that's good. I mean, I don't like to see people get hurt, but everybody has to pay a little bit of price. I mean, we've been people maximalists or toxic Bitcoiners have been saying for a long time that these are scams and there's nothing to them. Uh, yet these people continued to try to convince themselves that there was something there. Anyway, here is a CME chart, actually, of Bitcoin. I wanted to talk about this. Now, look at the difference here in the death cross or lack thereof. It's very interesting. We're bouncing off of the 200-day moving average in... Let me make sure you guys can see that. Um, we're bouncing off the 200-day moving average. That is crazy that it's so much different than I'll make it red here it's so much different than the other charts let me put this one back up we are squarely behind, underneath this 200 day moving average but when you look at a CME we're bouncing right off of it so that is very interesting it's not a, a wonder that we stopped here either because of that so anyway okay let me take a look at the chat see what you guys are up to you guys have anything? All right, well, let's just get into the news items then. We have the anti-money laundering laws apply to crypto too, says FinCEN chief. Now, two years ago or three years ago, FinCEN, well, I guess FinCEN has never been very uh, friendly to Bitcoin, but the CFTC was more friendly and the SEC has always been uh, against Bitcoin. But the fin FinCEN has really kind of stayed out of it. I mean, they say it applies to everybody and we'll see that in this story. So um, the United States Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, Director Kenneth Blanco spoke at the University of Georgetown where he made it clear that anti-money laundering laws apply to everyone. On October 21st, banking trade publication American Banker reported that Blanco said that fintech firms offering cryptocurrency users anonymity must comply with AML laws just like everyone else. I mean, how are they going to enforce it? I don't, I don't know. But here we go. FinCEN. Here's a quote from him. There is a reason you want to know the person on the other side of that transaction. They might be dealing in some kind of illicit activity. Notice he didn't say illegal. Illicit activity. Whether it's opioids or human smuggling on the other side, you want to know who that person is. So, <laughs> I mean, it's funny where they, they're taking this to, right? They're bringing in like the hot button topics. Oh, opi the opioid epidemic. So they might be dealing opioids or the, you know, human smuggling is always, or trafficking, whatever is always on, you know, one of these high lists of people. Um, everybody thinks it's wrong. So um, that's the thing that they always say. Uh, they don't say, hey, this is just for a freaking coffee. Why do I need to worry about who's on the other side? It's ridiculous. And then he goes into saying, oh, all we're asking for is name, address, account number, transaction, recipient, and amount. Well, what if somebody does something, gives you a false name and a false address, all of this false stuff? Like, that's the problem, you know, to enforce this. Oh, all we're asking for is this, but to enforce it. You need to go down the draconian um, boot, right, and smash people if they don't do it. And this pushes people into Bitcoin, which is great. But it's just um, one thing I thought when I was reading this first time was, wow, they have no idea that this sounds really, really bad. <laughs> um, anyway, so when when you tell me you don't know who's on the other side, you've got a big problem because you are required to know. And that is uh, what our expectation is going to be. Oh, that's about it from this this one. Do you guys have anything to add to this story? It was a real quick one. Okay. Um, Jeff said, do, do I think that it's a coincidence with CME? No, I don't. I 
I think traders were looking at that. Um, I know if I were actively trading, oops, if I were actively trading right now, I would be looking at that most definitely. And I've noticed some differences there before as well. Let me bring that chart back up. So if we go to the weekly, and we look at the weekly, um, but people are definitely looking at that, um, especially these these moving averages and things for sure. So I don't know. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, can it hold? I mean, it didn't bounce. It definitely did not bounce on this moving average at all. Uh, so that's not a good sign. It's probably going to lose this, I'm guessing. Anyway, okay. Next comment. Let's see. Eric Jones had something. Um, when do you think Schnorr gets in? And if so, the impact to BTC use cases. Schnorr is in that bundle with Taproot and some other things and Mast. So all of these things are going together. Uh, I know Schnorr is a signature aggregation thing, and it's supposed to be coming out uh, in the next soft fork. I believe it's the next soft fork. It's not going to be two soft forks away. So that would be, you know, hopefully being released towards the end of the year. Um, and whether how long that takes to get activated, I don't know. I hope they're not going to do BIP9 activation again uh, like they did with Segwit, where they have the miners vote on things. They should just set a flag day from the very beginning. And if you don't want to do it, you don't upgrade. Um, that's that's how I think we should roll. And, and people can upgrade or not. I mean, it's a soft fork. It's not like you have to upgrade. Anyway, they'll probably be in the next one. Schnorr, Mast, and Taproot. I know those guys are working on it like crazy, and I haven't seen anything really... Uh, hitting the main news wire about all that and i have not looked at optech newsletter for a couple weeks so i don't know the exact to the to the week update on that but it's coming within the next two years we'll have all of those things most likely all right let's take a look at this one oh adam back man he's a hero hero <laughs> anyway this is in forbes by Kyle Torpy, great dude, great toxic Bitcoiner. He probably doesn't want me to say that, but uh, great writer, and I support him in all of his success. And he's writing in Forbes here, so you know he's he's doing big things. Anyway, when will Bitcoin sidechains send Ethereum, Ripple, and other crypto prices to zero? This has been a contention for a long time, and I remember in 2014, um, I was listening to the interview with adam back when he i think it was before he released his white paper on the sidechain stuff um but i remember i was at the gym working out and i was listening to the podcast and i was like boom this is the future <laughs> it was one of those moments just like uh when i heard about the user activated soft fork i was like boom this is how we're gonna get segway activated it's just everything you know kind of falls into place uh and when I heard about this sidechain thing, I had the same similar uh, reaction to that. All of the arguments for altcoins are destroyed by sidechains, but let's get into this article. Tomorrow, a few hours from now, it will have been exactly five years since the original white paper on Bitcoin sidechains was released. The basic idea explained in the white paper was that Bitcoin users would be allowed to move their coins between multiple completely different blockchains that could enable a wide range of new cryptocurrency features. The end result of this functionality would theoretically be an end to the many altcoins that existed on the market at the time, as there would no longer be a legitimate reason to create a new currency in an effort to experiment with new features. Instead, new features that were sufficiently complex would, uh, could come to Bitcoin by way of sidechains. And that idea still stands. All right, that idea definitely still stands, but it has been harder to implement than people thought originally. I mean, it's one of these breakthroughs that comes about every few years, and it takes a lot more to implement it than, than you thought. Um, plus, there's just not demand for it yet. And so even if there, you could implement it faster, there's no, nothing to roll it out to. I hope that makes sense. And 
So there's no like real big uh, wave of people wanting to use this. Of course, every time that there's demand for something, then the market will meet the demand faster than if it's just a consortium of 10 companies or something uh, over two or three years working on a side project. Uh, that takes a long time. And that's kind of where side chains fit in. But hopefully, uh, we'll see some movement here in the near future. And I'll talk about that in the next article. But let's continue. Uh, this is quoting from the Adam Back interview now. In the history of altcoins, it seems that there was a period where there were a huge number of them that had no features. So he's saying like Litecoin. Litecoin has no feature above and beyond Bitcoin or Peercoin, or I guess Peercoin had proof of stake. But, you know, that's what he's saying here, that there weren't, weren't any fantastic fintech features added on. And that played out. Then people started to need a new way to market them, so they added features. Some of them were real features, and some of them were stories to market their altcoins. Back added that making Bitcoin more modular could allow developers to more easily bring new features to a peer-to-peer -peer digital cash system, but there is a problem with incentives when it comes to altcoins versus sidechains. Those who are motivated by money are incentivized to create an altcoin rather than simply innovate on Bitcoin. Quote, this financial incentive will remain, but it will, be, will have less credibility because if you have a very easy-to-use extension mechanism for Bitcoin and examples of extensions that do something sim uh, simple that you can build on, there's not really a good story about why you're doing it elsewhere, explained back. So yeah, that's... um. Uh, like I said, it still destroys all of their all the altcoin narratives. Um, but there will, of course, be altcoins because they're scammers. There are still Nigerian print scams going on. You know, there's still all of this um, these phishing emails and everything that go on. People scam. That's what they do. People also do legitimate business, and sometimes they do both. <laughs> you don't know who the scammer is, and so there will be these altcoins. But, in my opinion, that the existence of sidechains actually makes it harder to build a legitimate altcoin because of the possibility to do it the uh, easy way with Bitcoin. And there's always that excuse or always that um, possibility that keeps them from getting like real long-term uh, hodlers of their coin. Um, you just say, well, why why not build a sidechain on Bitcoin? And then the long-term hodlers will be scared that something will come out in the future on the, on a sidechain of Bitcoin and people won't be hodling for a long time. So um, it, it makes it, just the existence of sidechains actually makes it harder for altcoins. Um, anyway, so making better sidechains. The version of sidechains that exist today aren't actually trustless. Blockstream's liquid sidechain puts control in the of the funds on the sidechain into the hands of a federation of Bitcoin exchanges, traders, and other financial institutions. An alternative system known as DriveChain, which has been developed by Bitcoin res researcher Paul Stortz, would put miners in control of the funds on the sidechain, but enabling this type of sidechain would require a soft forking change to Bitcoin. So yeah, basically you have to right now do federations, but there is no limit to how big these federations can be. There's probably some sort of multi-sig limit right now. Um, and that is why I think Liquid is 15. Um, but when we do get Schnorr, like Eric asked about, then uh, and Mast and all these other things, uh, the federations can be hundreds of people or hundreds of organizations and um, do that. But at the same time, sidechains don't need to be trustless. Like this is falling into this trap where layer two needs to be trustless. It doesn't. Um, it's good if it is. Like Lightning is really cool that they're they're building it the way they are because it is a trustless protocol. But it doesn't need to be. Bitcoin is trustless. So, or trust minimized. So you don't need to have this trustless uh, side chain. Um, all you need to do is say like this it has more network effects or less network effects and 
Um, can you build it on a side chain? Yes or no. That's it. You don't need to necessarily worry about, um, like, for example, if you have some gambling app on Ethereum that's using a token, um, why not build it on a side chain? It's a centralized thing. If any, any project out there is already centralized compared to Bitcoin anyway, right? So why not just make it a side chain? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Okay, uh, let's see. I didn't highlight anything else. Uh, th that is a really good article. I do have it linked down below if you guys want to check that out. Let me check the chat. What's up, dudes? Okay, let's uh, move on to this John Carvalho piece. Vlad Costilla, writer for Bitcoin Magazine. Oh, that's Vlad. That's the guy that uh, from the take Bitcoin Takeover show. A very good interview he did with um, Christian, um, member of our Discord, great friend of the show, Christian from POV Crypto Podcast. Uh, that was a great episode with him. Anyway, so John Carvalho, he was given a lightning talk at one of the conferences here. I, don't, I can never keep track of all these conferences. So this was the lightning conference in Berlin. And it was funny. He was uh, scheduled to make a presentation inside, but it was too noisy. So he went outside, uh, which is a pretty boss move. But then they had a little interview. Uh, I just want to read some of this. In September 2019, BitRefill CEO Sergey Kotlier also did a Bitcoin Magazine video interview in which he explained his views on the circular, circular economy. However, Kotlier, Kotlier's argument was mostly about scarce and limited assets being traded back and forth as part of a living-on-crypto lifestyle. Carvalho took the extra step of explaining the concept by focusing on Bitcoin's Lightning Network as the layer which provides privacy and scalability. Quote, we've been talking to exchanges to see what they need in place in order to get on the Lightning Network. So we've been working a lot behind the scenes in order to figure out what needs to be developed. So I think in the coming months, you'll see the results of that, said John Carvalho. Well, <laughs> the first thing that's needed is user demand, right? The first thing that's needed is user demand. So you can't... Uh, just ask the exchanges to get on Lightning if there's only, say, uh, 100 traders that want to use it. They're not going to do that. Uh, I mean, maybe they will, but it's not a, good, not a good way to go about it. It's the same thing when you go to merchants and you say, please accept Bitcoin, please accept Bitcoin. And they do it and they make one Bitcoin sale from you. And then you never spend your Bitcoins there again because you don't spend your Bitcoins wisely. And so then it looks bad on Bitcoin. I mean, it doesn't necessarily look bad on Bitcoin, but, you know, it might uh, uh, scare them off from doing it next time. And so when, when they really have a bunch of demand or more demand, but they don't do it in a timely manner. So um, the best thing would be to make a product that has demand for it. And right now there's very little enlightening, unfortunately. I think that they're going about this the right way, and we'll see it down here a little bit. Lower. Let me read here about the Thor channels. BitRefill is also spearheading innovation with Thor Turbo Channels, which enables users to open Lightning channels instantly with on-chain payments that can be made with BTC as well as a few altcoins without waiting for the network confirmation required to call the transaction immutable. So they can open up the channel and make the transaction right away and they don't need to wait for confirmation apparently. So anyway... It sounds like a risky approach for BitRefill to take, assuming that users will act in good faith and won't double spend their transactions. However, it's all being done in the name of accelerating Lightning adoption and becoming a household name in the second layer ecosystem. Now, don't think that what I said <laughs> a minute ago is dissing on BitRefill. I think they are doing awesome. They are a solidly toxic company, so I really like that. But it's a hard road to hoe. It's a very hard road to hoe. And I wish them the best of luck. I wish, you know, they have some really great guys there. So they'll probably come up with something and, you know, be able to um, make it big. But it's it's hard right now for, for Lightning. Um, maybe we're a year or two away. I don't know. I was really 
pumped about Lightning when it first came out, but there is just no demand right now. That's all you can say. Okay, Carvalho said that the price of these Tor, uh, Thor turbo channels uh, is also being revised in order to make the service more accessible. However, he made it clear that Lightning isn't cheap and should not be regarded as such because users will suffer the same kind of disillusionment they had with early uh, on-chain transactions. Quote, we're looking at lowering the prices as much as possible. It's tricky because we almost did the same mistake as we did with Bitcoin in the early days. Everybody is saying that Lightning is scaling and it's cheap, but Lightning isn't cheap and isn't uh, and it's not going to be cheaper than on-chain Bitcoin until Bitcoin blocks are full. Yes, that great point. And they realize that, and that's that's a good thing. Okay, let's see. Let's skip to this spectrum because this is really interesting. In order for Lightning to get to the next level, we need certain aspects of infrastructure to be in place. So we started working on spectrum so that we can do layer three operations on Lightning. We're thinking way ahead. Now, this is what I think is possible to bring Lightning to the next level. Um, Carvalho is one of the key figures involved in the Spectrum project, which seeks to put uh, RGB tokens on top of the Lightning network. Admittedly, this new wave of innovation on top of Layer 2 is Bitcoin's own Ethereum moment, where we can actually do all the dumb things that Ethereum does, except that we're on, they're on Bitcoin and we don't have to deal with scams said Carvalho. Um, yeah, so RGB is a protocol from Giacomo Zucco, and they, well, he's working on it, but it, they, you can do tokens on Lightning Network, which is extremely exciting to me. <laughs> We've had tokens on Bitcoin before, and even back then I got extremely excited because uh, that is one of the only altcoins, that is the only altcoin I've ever bought. I've never, I bought Counterparty back in the day, but I've never bought any other altcoin. And um, that Counterparty was this tokenized thing that you could do tokens on Bitcoin. Of course, it went, went, went by the wayside, just kind of never caught on enough to make it worth it for people. And I think it's actually pretty much dead at this point. But anyway, these RGB tokens are supposed to be bringing these tokens to Lightning Network. And I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Nonetheless, there's more to the picture than meets the eye. Spectrum was created as a way of moving tokens to the Lightning Network, but soon a need for DEX, decentralized exchanges, functionality appeared. We don't just need colored coins and channels, but also the ability of passing them through nodes that don't have anything to do with this. So you need to have a way to trade your BTC for tokens, and the system resembles a DEX. In the words of the BitRefill CCO, building layer 3 means adding plugin functionality or influencing aspects about how the protocol is built so that people can build more things on top of Lightning Network. Therefore, we aren't just speaking of one application such as RGB tokens or tokenized cloud storage via Storm, but an entire ecosystem of tools which enables all sorts of creative use cases. And now I'm thinking... I think John was big into Counterparty too. I know he's been in Bitcoin for a while, and um, I think I remember him from talking about Counterparty back in the day. Anyway, what what I think is really interesting about these tokens is the like if you look at Bitcoin or look at these Ethereum DApps here. I just have this DappRadar.com pulled up for Ethereum, and the number one app is My Crypto Heroes, which is a game. It's centralized by developers. It's centralized by the server. The only thing that's decentralized about it is the token, okay, quote-unquote decentralized, uh, because I'm sure that they can revoke it at any time they want to through a backdoor in their smart contracts, because all smart contracts on Ethereum has to have backdoors, because if there's a bug, you have to have a way to fix it, right? So all Ethereum tokens have backdoors. Anyways, so here is, they have 3,000 users over the last 24 hours which is better than it has been in the past but again this is who knows who these users are um and 3000 daily active users is nothing really for a game so 
but it could easily be on Bitcoin and you could have a token on the Lightning Network, right? And so these tokens could be centralized on the Lightning Network through this spectrum, whatever they're working on. So I think that's very interesting. MakerDAO, of course, uh, we won't talk about them because that's a whole nother bag of worms. But if you look at these top, top 10, other than that, it's all gambling or games. You have Gods Unchained. That, I don't know if that's a game. Uh, Crypto Dozer is a game, but it's like gambling. You guys remember those little coin-operated things where you drop the token in and then the, the little sweeper comes up and maybe it pushes a bunch more tokens off the edge. I think that's what this is. Um, so it's just a silly game, and they have 700 <laughs> daily active users. But all these things could be tokens on Lightning Network. Um, they don't need to be decentralized. They don't need to be executed in a decentralized fashion. I mean, Crypto Heroes. So you have this game that's centralized with centralized developers, and your token is centralized because it has to have a backdoor to fix a bug if there's or make a patch or whatever. Your your contract is centralized. Um, why have it on a decentralized platform? I mean, that's that's one reason why all these things aren't taking off. I mean. Maybe it's a really cool game. Never played it, but my Crypto Heroes. Maybe it's really cool, and it only has 3,000 users? Like, that is bad. Maybe they get 30,000 if they just stop lying about needing this decentralized execution of smart contracts, and they built a real system on light, uh, the Lightning Network with these RGB tokens. So that's, that's what I'm seeing, is all of these games, all of these things moving over to Lightning. Why not? They'll work better. Anyway, let's check the chat. I haven't been checking the chat. The Fed is now fully engaged in not QE4. Yes, I'm going to talk about that here in a second there, Ken. Okay, Eric asks about Schnorr. Is it the most important pending current upgrade? Hopefully it gets in fine. Um, Schnorr, I think, is one of those pieces that you need for, like, mast. And some other things. Maybe Taproot, I'm not sure. But yes, it is a very important piece um, that's coming in. Uh, it's a very powerful piece, too. That's all I know. <laughs> I'd have to look that up again. I mean, a couple years back when they first started talking about it, you know, I was more, way more up on it than I am now. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Yeah, Jeff, unfortunately... <laughs> 700 daily active users looks like a lot for the daily for the dozer game yeah <laughs> well it's because it's all bots you know there's a study by some analytics firm here in crypto in bitcoin they looked at eos specifically but i think they also looked at uh, ethereum earlier before this this report that they wrote about on eos anyways so eos had it was like 75 percent bots for all of their users, at least. It was like at least 75% because the way that they looked at the transactions and the patterns and all those things, they said it was a bot. And so I believe that on these games, I mean, yeah, who's freaking playing this crypto dozer? 718 people a day? What a waste, man. I mean, this I bet 700 of those are fake bots. <laughs> And, you know, maybe all these numbers are looking better because they've gotten better at making bots. <laughs> uh, of course, this is the standout metric. Two million Ethereum locked up in MakerDAO. That is a powder keg. Powder keg. What else? Yes, okay, so about, Jeff, you were saying about someone creates something on Lightning that makes me want to be there. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you are not alone. There are a lot of people that really like the Lightning Network, and I really like it. Don't get me wrong. It is the future, but it's not today. And today is hodling, buying and hodling. How do we get more people onto the exchanges? Think about during the last bull run. There was, at one point, there was like 100,000 people a day trying to sign up for Coinbase worldwide, from worldwide. And all of the exchanges had very similar experiences. Um, 50 to 100,000 people trying to sign up for these exchanges on the same day and they couldn't do it because, you know, you had to KYC and AML all these people. And so 
there there was just that bottleneck. I mean, let's fix that, right? This is what we need to fix is um, getting around this, getting a DEX for real, getting a DEX. I, I think BISC is a really good place to start. Um, BISC is coming out with their latest and greatest. So um, I think BISC needs to be built up more. I don't know exactly how the liquidity is. I want to say they have um, in the tens of thousands of users now. So um, I think there could be some good liquidity there and we need to pump that up. It would be nice to see a BISC with like a million users. Imagine that. That would be some really good liquidity. There'd be people trading all the time and that would be a great on-ramp for, for people. Anyway. Yes, exactly. They're trying to trick the metrics to pump. That's why they put the bots on there. All right, let's get into some of this other stuff. I'm really bad with these names, guys. It's Rosneft. Rosneft. It's the Russian, the largest Russian oil company. They switch from doing contracts to euros from dollars due to U.S. sanctions. So this is the whole idea of de-dollarization. Um, around the world, this is happening everywhere. Um, many people are starting to um, trade oil. It started with Iran and I think China, they signed a deal, um, but it could be other countries as well. Or no, sorry, Iran and Turkey, they signed a deal uh, first for selling oil for gold. And that was like four or five years ago. And since then, it's kind of gone, gone on because the U.S. didn't do anything. They talked and they saber rattled, but they didn't go in and stop that right the petrodollar had been popped at that point and we see this continuing to uh pick up pace now the largest oil company from russia which is a very large oil producer part of opec um, they've fully switched from uh, dollars to euros to avoid u.s sanctions rosneft's switch to the euro is seen as part of russia's wider scale drive to reduce dependence on the dollar but it is unlikely to quickly boost the euro's role for Russia given the negative interest rates it carries. Quote, all our export contracts are already being implemented in euros and the potential for working with the European currency is very high. Some guy from the company told a reporter in Italy, quote, for now, this is a forced measure in order to limit the company from the impact of U.S. sanctions, end quote. Reuters reported earlier this month, that's important, earlier this month, that the state-controlled Rosneft set the euro as the default currency for all of its new export contracts. So this is not happening today, okay? This is happening a while ago. Even though this came out today, October 24th, 2019, six hours ago, on Reuters, this is earlier this month, they already did this and so let's take a look at the oil price so let's do weekly and we'll just do like the last few weeks the the oil price has gone up slightly um of course this is dollar price i don't even know if you can get oil published in euros this is a good question what's the price wow okay i'll have to look that up uh if you guys can find that for me googling it in the chat and see but that is a good question what is the price of oil in euros anyways um let's continue with this so washington ha has threatened to impose sanctions on rosneft over its operations in venezuela a move which rosneft says would be illegal moscow has been hit by a raft of other financial and economic sanctions from washington over its role in the ukrainian crisis and alleged meddling in the U.S. elections. Russia denies all wrongdoing. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is also having trouble with their allies, quote-unquote allies in Europe, because the allies were undermining these sanctions, and Germany was one of them. Um, Germany has a very close tie with Russia, um, business-wise, and historically, too, but uh, because, you know, all of the Russian czars and things they were uh, almost almost all of them were german and uh, so you know every princess that came into russia was like a german princess that came in so there's a, a close tie with germany and russia plus the business 
aspect here is very very close ties. I mean, I don't want I don't know exactly what it was uh, the number of major companies, but it was in the hundreds that were both uh, like German companies headquarter having operations in Russia. So like it's very very closely linked. Anyway, um, let's see where was I. Last year, Rosneft exported oil and oil products worth $5.7 trillion rubles, or $89 billion. Man, it sounds more impressive when you say it in rubles. $5.7 trillion rubles. It'd be like saying it in sats. Oh, yeah, it's 100 million. 100 million sats, man. Anyways, um, according to its reports, Russia's largest producer of liquefied natural gas, Novatech, also said... On Thursday, it had switched to euros in most of its contracts in order to avoid the impact of U.S. sanctions. This is equally as important. I think Russia actually exports more natural gas than oil, but I could be wrong. I know that uh, Europe is highly dependent on on Russian natural gas. So uh, this is a big deal if they're going to be doing natural gas and oil in euros. Pretty big deal. Let's continue. Rosneft's switch to the euro comes amid attempts by Russian companies to work out ways to carry out international transactions without the U.S. dollar. Russian President Vladimir Putin has called for de-dollarization that should help limit exposure to the lasting risk of more U.S. sanctions, while the Russian central bank has lowered the amount of U.S. treasuries in its reserves in 2018, and it massively. I don't even know... It's very trivial amounts that they have left of U.S. treasuries, and they've been buying gold, of course, with it, and maybe Bitcoin, maybe Bitcoin miners. We don't know. The switch to the euro has its downside, as under the current policy of the European Central Bank, financial institutions are required to pay interest for parking excess reserves with the bank, known as negative interest rates. Quote, there's no sense in storing money under negative interest rates, said Alexander Lozneff, or Lozef. God, I'm so bad with names. Ahead of the Sputnik asset management. Given the negative rates, Rosneft's switch to operations in euros is capable of increasing the amount of euro conversion, as Rosneft will seek to ditch the currency for those that are of more use in its operations, market experts say. Okay, so basically, this is meaning that they're not going to hold the euros. You know, we, this, we've talked about this with Bitcoin. Um, when you spend your Bitcoin, the people aren't going to, they're not going to hodl it on the other side. They're going to dump it. Um, so it's not necessarily good to spend your Bitcoins. But in this case, is uh, they're going to use the euro, but then they're going to sell it on the open market right away. So there is switching costs here. Um, they really want to get around sanctions. I mean, the switching costs alone, plus having the infrastructure to sell in euros. I mean, is Russia going to sell? Like, are they going to sell oil to India in euros? I doubt it. It depends on the people that are buying. They're going to be only selling oil in euros because it's the default currency. Remember, it's not the sole currency. Um, So they're going to be selling this to Europeans, which isn't going to be a ton of oil. It's going to be a ton of natural gas, but um, I don't know how much oil that would be, honestly. Not as much as the U.S. would import or, you know, whatever. It's not a huge, huge deal, but it's interesting that this is happening, and the, the U.S. can't do anything about it. The U.S. cannot do anything about it. So we'll see. I mean, this flies directly in the face of my stronger dollar hypothesis, but um, hey, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. Let's check the chat. 56 euro per barrel. Where'd you get that, Jeff? Is it somewhere? Is it? <laughs> where is it listed? Now, is that Brent? Or is that WTI? Who's buying it? Because remember, they they um, that's one reason why they had to take out Saddam because he was going to sell oil for euros, um, and then Gaddafi was because of the gold dinar that he was going to launch, and he was very much into Arab pride and things like that. Uh, so they didn't want anything happening with the petrodollar. Man, how far do we come in a short period of time? When was Benghazi? Was that 2012? How far have we come in seven years? The U.S. can't do anything about it. They cannot do anything about it. 
it is this is truly amazing that this has happened that quickly oh you posted two links uh must be in discord i'll check it out thanks man last story here i have is from the street real money and it's all about the fed i'm just going to read a summary they have of the situation it's not too long but then talk about what's been going on here in the last uh, week so by september 2019 it was certain that perhaps the fed had tightened the system too much as they had withdrawn reserves beyond what was needed by the system cracks appeared in the repo market in september when overnight rates shot to above 10 percent compared to the fed funds target rate of 2.25 to 2.5 percent certainly not normal but the u.s fed lied to us this was not a plumbing problem or a one-off quarter-end financing issue as tax receipts were due. If it were so, then why is there still a shortage of dollar liquidity after the quarter-end into Q4? Repo rates did not settle down, and demand for overnight auctions was way ahead of the Fed's $75 billion daily injection limit. Overnight auctions have been 3 to 5x oversubscribed every day. On the September 17th, it was just meant uh, to be for a few days. On September 19th, they extended it to October 10th for an amount of $75 billion overnight operations and $30 billion term operations. Then, in October, they extended this operation through November 4th until uh, only to extend it until January 2020, just a few days later. To top it all off, they also announced a $60 billion per month treasury bill buying operation with no end date. <laughs> I, I didn't know that's what they were calling it. Is that That's not what they're calling it, is it? Buying operation? <laughs> I thought they were calling it open market operation. Treasury bill buying operation. That sounds really funny. But this guy probably knows more than I do here. Um, who is this? Maliha Bengali. Is that, I, I don't even know if that's a male name. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's getting late here. All right, so let's continue. The icing on the cake was Wednesday night. The U.S. Fed, um, out of nowhere, just came out and said, we are expanding our overnight repo operations to $120 billion and term operations to $45 billion. So the difference here is these overnight operations, you know, are the ones that are supposed to be paid back the next day, which we don't know if that's happening. There's no way to know. They will not tell us if it's not happening, right? It's a shadow banking system. We do not know. Even the Fed balance sheet, which supposedly is the truth, we don't know. I mean, it went up $100 billion before any of this was, before any of this was supposed to be term. So what they mean by term is like 14 days to 30 days, I believe, are the two different terms that they can have, or 14 and 28 days, something like that. So you don't have to repurchase right away. It's not an overnight one and done sort of thing. You can let it sit there for a while. And uh, we don't know about that either. We don't know. All we know is what the Fed publishes on their website, which isn't a ton of information. It's just enough to make us feel like we know what's going on, but we really don't. We don't know what's what they're buying. Like we don't we know that they're buying a certain amount of mortgage-backed securities every day and a certain amount of treasuries every day, at least that's what they're telling us. But we don't know what or from whom. Is this from Deutsche Bank? Is this from Goldman Sachs? Is this from, you know, Bank of America, JP Morgan? What what is this from? We don't know. And I mean, I guess you could say that's good because you don't want to run on the banks, but come on now. Hundreds of billions of dollars. There is a problem here that the people should know about, right? Anyway, so yeah, the term is doesn't have to be repaid right away, and the hundred and twenty billion are that are supposed to be just repaid the next day or overnight the next morning. But then there's also this 30, where is it, 60 billion per month of treasury bill buying operation. So that they're just uh, once a week or something, they're going to go out and buy 7.5 billion 
in a pure QE. Now that's pure QE. They don't have any intention on reselling it. They're just buying it, uh, these troubled assets off the banks. So this is like three different types of QE at one time. It's crazy, man. I, d I don't understand how this is actually flying, to be honest with you. But of course, I've said in the past though, QE actually makes the currency stronger <laughs> because it has this upside, backwards, down, whatever way of treating these currencies. So uh, if a government or central bank stops doing QE, the people think that the economy is going to slow down. So they don't need to hold as many of those uh, units of that currency. Where if the currency is, or if the economy is doing great and is being pumped up by QE, we know it will probably continue to do great. Uh, at least that's the expectation. Then people will want to hold that currency. It's an upside down motherfucker. Okay, let's continue here. Uh, call it Uncle Sam's ice cream money or whatever you want. Any way you look at it, this is ultra accommodative monetary policy. Just renamed to avoid the taboo of the U.S. Uh, Fed initiating another round of quantitative easing. Easing. God, easing. This has been evident throughout history, especially in Japan and the Eurozone. Decades of stimulus and low rates, negative even in some cases, have failed to boost GDP and stoke inflation. Now we are beyond negative interest rates, and they still want to do more. Alas, central banks do not um, pay heed to mistakes of the past, but use it as a guide to continue using the same principles. All right, so that's enough on an update on what's going on with the repo. But he continues here talking about China, and this is one of the things that I try to watch closely is the China situation. Something seems to be brewing in China as well. Last week, they injected about 250 billion yuan in reserve overnight operations, aka adding liquidity, forget the fancy name, uh, <laughs> as there are people paid a lot of money to come up with newer, more elusive names to mask the same thing. This week, they added 510 billion yuan, more than 250 billion on Monday, and 250 billion on Tuesday, and another 60 billion Wednesday. So, yuan is a, what? Just over 7 to 1. So, this is about 100 billion, a little bit less than 100 billion dollars in one week that they pumped into their system. China has a real problem, and they and the world are well aware of it. Their GDP growth is at risk of falling short of the holy grail 6% number or worse. They can, either, uh, they can never admit it. The trade wars have cost them a lot, as their entire system is built on credit, leverage, and cheap interest rate policy. When that is challenged, there is a risk of the entire house burning down. So what does China do? Throw even more money at the problem. Stimulate the economy to boost growth, investing in infrastructure projects to show a quick positive trend in industrial production and GDP. China's in a bad way. The U.S. is in a less bad way. And since the dollar is the de facto reserve currency, um, the U.S. has the upper hand here. I think the collapse could start in China, but I've said that before. Okay, let me go to the chat, see what you guys are up to. Okay, Randy says, how do you build a consumer market with hodlers? That's a great question. People have to want to receive it. So if I am a business, I'll offer my services for Bitcoin. It'll probably start with payments of like income or freelancers or whatever. These people will demand to be paid somewhat in Bitcoin um, or for services out there um, whatever services they are, like let's say you're a roofer, you can request to be paid in Bitcoin. So there is that's where the that's where the, it grows. It doesn't grow from you going and asking somebody to accept Bitcoin. Hash rate's still going up. Let's take a quick look at that. I haven't looked at it in a couple days here, guys. So we just had another adjustment up five percent. That is pretty big considering that the price is going down. That's still pretty big. And now 3% estimated for two weeks from now. We'll have to see. We'll have to see how this works with the price, but uh, that's extremely healthy. Of course, all of these new miners are coming online that are really efficient compared to old miners. So um, we'll see. We'll see how it goes.
All right, guys, if that's everything, then I'm going to sign off. Uh, thanks for joining me. Ansel Linder, check next time.